So yes, I am Hannah Chernis's dad. Please do not hold that against her. Um, you know, I really love Thrive. I'm also on the board for Thrive too. I uh, just have a love for this ministry. One, three things really I love about Thrive. Number one uh, is that, you know, Thrive, a young adult community, but it's, you're, you're not into the gimmicky stuff or trendy. You just do basic Bible study, preaching the word, worship, small groups, just really simple, uh, uh, basic Christianity. And I love that about Thrive. And also, number two, that you're not afraid to go deep. Uh, into the word and then number three that you are a welcoming community and I know that you welcome folks from all different backgrounds wherever people are at in their spiritual journey and so if you're here tonight and you're just kind of on that path still and hey I'm not even sure if I believe this stuff you know that this is the place for you because this is the time of life where you, you need to wrestle with some of those questions sometimes and that's totally okay so wherever you're at on your spiritual journey tonight um, I believe God wants to say something uh, to each one of you. And so, uh, could we just pray and then just ask that God would, uh, would speak to, uh, to each of us in just a special way. Let's, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would um, just take these words right now spoken, and would you translate into every heart here exactly what you want to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I understand you're going through this kind of big picture series, uh, uh, kind of a, the big God story going through the Bible. And so my, uh, my assignment is to hit the prophets, that part of the Bible story. But first, I, let me just give a little background, a little review, and I think you guys have done this uh, in some of your other uh, talks. But here's kind of my take on, on kind of the summary of the Bible up to this point. Somewhere in our ancient past, a terrible tragedy occurred. Uh, our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, uh, rebelled against God, and, 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 and at that moment of that they fell into sin, humanity that was created good, completely good, became broken. It stopped working like it was designed to function. And so Adam and Eve, they were, they were kicked out of the garden, and at that moment, the moment that humanity went into a rebellion, we became like flashlights without batteries. We were not able to function as human beings were designed to function. But also from that exact moment that Adam and Eve fell away and, and entered into sin, God had a plan. And the name of that plan was and is Jesus. Uh, it was always the plan. It's not like God said, okay, I've got one plan. Plan A, let's try this Old Testament religion stuff for a while. And, oh, that didn't work. Now we'll try plan B, Jesus. No, the plan has always been Jesus from the, from the very beginning. From the moment Adam fell away, the plan is Jesus. But there are some things that God needed to do to prepare humanity for Jesus to come. He had to reveal uh, to us how much humanity really needs Jesus and why. And, and here's how he did that. The first thing he did, he brought this thing called the flood. And here's what I think was happening with the flood. I think the flood answered a question, and the question is this. What, what is really the problem of, of, of evil and, and the world? And, and I mean, maybe it's just our environment and bad people and culture and the, the world system. And so it, what if we just could wipe all that out and start with one relatively good person? Maybe that would fix things. And so that happened with the flood. The flood washed everything away, got started over with one relatively good person, Noah and his family, but that didn't fix it. 
There, there was still just as much evil and brokenness that came as a result because the problem is not the external of, of the world and culture and society. The problem, it's deeper than that. It's in us. There's a disease of sin in every single person, and it's, and it's, and it's, it's deadly, it's fatal, and it's deeply uh, contagious. And so then... God interacted, he engaged on his next part of his strategy, divide and conquer. You know what divide and conquer it is? You, your army, you're heading against a big army, and so you zip right in between the army, and you, you divide in two, and then you just concentrate on one half of the army. And that's what God did, I think, at the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, he divided humanity up into various people groups, and then he picked one of those people groups to be the launching pad through which he would reach out to save every other. And that first people group that he launched was a man named Abraham. And he gave promises to Abraham. And Abraham believed and trusted in those promises, trusted God. And he became the first person of faith. And his, he, his family then grew. And they ended up going to Egypt for about 400 years. And became a nation down there. And then after 400 years, they were slaves. And then God raised up Moses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And what God was doing there is he was giving a blueprint for the great salvation building that God would one day build. It was all, it was all a, a blueprint, a shadow of the great salvation building that God would one day establish. However, before he could build that salvation building, he had to lay a foundation. And so he, he called Moses, and he, through Moses, gave this thing called the law. And so for several centuries then, God began to drill into that one people group, the Israelites, true things about himself, true things about human nature, about us. And ultimately, through that lesson of those hundreds of years of giving them the law, he revealed to them that there is no way that we can do the law. That, that no matter how hard we try, even if we know exactly what we're supposed to do, we don't do it. The law can't change us. It can simply diagnose the disease, that we've got the sin disease. And, and, so, uh, and so that's what the law uh, does. It just diagnoses the disease. What we really need is what we really need is to not be rebels anymore. And what we really need is really for the king to come, uh, like we had him uh, in uh, the garden. And for a season there, you know, God really, you know, he had the period of the judges we, you talked about, I think, at one t point. And, and uh, you know, God wanted to be their king. He wanted to be the Israelites' king. But the Israelites were not ready for God to be their king. They still thought they could do this life thing on their own. And so they said, we want our own king. And so God gave them their own kings. And that worked out for a couple decades. They had a couple good kings. But then the problem is they had some bad kings because the kings also had this sin disease. And it's fatal. And they're flashlights without batteries. And so uh, they just became just as, as, as broken as everybody else and led them down uh, uh, broken paths. Uh, but also with the kings, the kings were also a blueprint. They're also a faint echo of this, one, of this future king that would come, this perfect king Messiah that would come. It, it, was a, it was a faint echo, a blueprint of that, again, of that salvation building that God would one day build. 
And so that kind of brings us to tonight where we're looking at this topic of the prophets. The prophets really happen in tandem with the kings. Uh, the bad kings really come on the scene from about 900 B.C. to about 500 B.C. There's a civil war in Israel. They get split into the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And during that period, uh, God raised up various prophets to speak to various ones of those kingdoms. Now, the prophets... Though they were kind of at the same time as the bad kings, they were not like the kings at all. Because kings, for the good kings, you kind of picture the kings as being, you know, protecting and, and caring for the people. And kind of like a shepherd uh, is what the kings were meant to be. Uh, but the prophets, they were not like that at all. What they, they were not good spiritual caregivers. They stirred things up. The prophets really were, they were like whistleblowers. You know what a whistleblower is? A whistleblower sees some kind of illicit behavior in an individual or in an organization, and they call it out. They call out that behavior. They expose it. And the prophets are really like that. They are uh, like uh, whistleblowers. They, they, they shine the spotlight on the dysfunction in the organization, be it the southern kingdom of Judah or the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. And they call out this and they call attention to it. The other thing they do, though, then after they call attention to it, they say, we need new leadership. And so the pattern of the prophets is really they, they call out the sin, they're whistleblowers, and they identify it, and, and they say judgment is coming because of it. And then they also say we need new leadership. In other words, they point ahead to this future good king. This, this king like David was a good king, but this is going to be a better king, pointing ahead to the Messiah king who would uh, one day come and uh, and which kind of was uh, goes all the way back to the very beginning of the rescue mission the the plan that God had at the very beginning when Adam and Eve fell away now the prophets that's kind of what the prophets are the prophets can be a hard read it can be a difficult thing to read the prophets because there's a lot of historical background that needs to kind of be done there. Um, but it, it can be so rewarding if you really press through and, and read the prophets. They're kind of like, like this book. This is my copy of the Silmarillion. Anybody heard of the Silmarillion? Has anybody read the Silmarillion? Oh, there's a couple people going to heaven. That's good. This, I, okay, I'm a Tolkien geek. I love the Lord of the Rings. You, how many have read the books, Lord of the Rings? Okay, have, seen the movies? Hobbit movies don't count. Yeah, so, so uh, most of you have, and you know, they're, they're wonderful books. I love the Lord of the Rings. But you know what the Silmarillion is? This was Tolkien's, this was his baby. He, he poured his life into this. Uh, he spent his whole life on this work. In fact, he never published it. Uh, it was published by his son after his death. But what this was, it was it's kind of like this elaborate backstory to the Lord of the Rings. It's thousands of years of fictional history. It is a tough read, though. It's written in really archaic language. It's, it's not like the Lord of the Rings at all, but if you can press through it and kind of understand it, then when you read the Lord of the Rings again, oh my goodness, certain things just pop out. You, you, something, something you didn't get before, something like, that's referencing this thing that in the Silmarillion happened like thousands of years in the history. There's this whole rich history that Tolkien's woven together. And that's kind of like the prophets. The prophets are like the Silmarillion of the Bible. And, uh, but if you can really press through it, uh, certain things are just going to pop out for you that never did before. There's going to be certain things in the New Testament that's just going to come alive for you because you realize, oh, I never knew why that was there, but now I know it's referring back to that. And here, I'll give you just one example. In the book of Amos, 
Uh, Amos was a farmer. He was a whistleblower. God called him to leave his job, and he went into northern Israel about 8th century B.C. or so. And it was a, during a period of time in Israel's history where there was a lot of wealth, security, prosperity, uh, but also idolatry, and they were oppressing the poor, taking advantage of people, and there was just this religious hypocrisy going on as well. They were just going through the motions. And so Amos was called by God to call them out. And oh my goodness, if you read the book of Amos, it is so convicting. Because it, I'm, it reads like it is being written to the church in America today. It, it really is, is very convicting of, of what Amos calls uh, out the people of Israel for. And, and then he talks about judgment. You're going to be judged. Uh, and, and so it's kind of a scary thing because I feel I'm, is that judgment going to fall on me because I fall into these same sins of Israel. And it would be scary except for, uh, for Amos goes on to actually tell us when the judgment's going to come. He tells us when this judgment is going to fall. And it comes in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. He says this, In that day, talking about judgment day, In that day, this is when the judgment day is going to happen, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go dark at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. When did that happen? When Jesus hung on the cross, the sun went dark. And, and if, you, if you read the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every single one of them, they've read Amos, and they want you to know that's exactly what happened. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Mark 15, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Luke 23, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain in the temple that represented uh, our division our separation from God because of our sin it was torn in two Jesus called out with a loud voice father into my hands I come out my spirit and when he had said that he breathed his last judgment day fell at the cross that's when the sun went dark Jesus didn't come to bring judgment he came to bear judgment it's the gospel and and the and the apostles, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they knew that. They read Amos, and so they wanted to make sure you understood that the sun went dark that day. Prophecy fulfilled of Amos was fulfilled. And that is just one of many examples in the prophets of, 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 of places in the New Testament where, where writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself refers back again and again to many and many of the prophets. It makes the entire New Testament come alive. Now, next slide. Here's a list of the prophets. We kind of classify all the prophets uh, in the Old Testament into what we call the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And that has nothing to do with which of them are more important than the other. It just means the size of the book. The major prophets are just really long. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, they're just longer books. And the minor prophets are, are, are shorter books, and generally speaking. And each of them has a unique uh, context and, and a message. However, if you kind of take them all together, um, at the risk of generalizing a little bit, um, you could, there's kind of a, there's a common pattern for, for most of the prophets. Most of the prophets identify two sins of Israel that comes up again and again and again. And, and those two sins are idolatry and religious hypocrisy. Uh, where idolatry is, you know, worshiping other idols, 
Uh, but you know what idolatry is for us today. It, it may not be worshiping a physical idol. Maybe maybe worshiping uh, you know money or fame or sex or or relationships or or it can be even religion. It can be an idol or ourselves are an idol, and so we all fall into idolatry. And then the other one is is religious hypocrisy. And and the prophets they 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 hit these topics again. And, and again and, and again. And so what I would just like to do is rather than kind of give an overview of all the different prophets uh, for you tonight, which would take forever and ever, I just want to spotlight one prophet that I think really did a beautiful job highlighting these two sins. Or, or if you put it in the positive, the positive would be, you know, instead of idolatry, God, it, God wants us to worship him alone. But, but, it's, but he doesn't just want us to worship him alone. Because he, he doesn't want religious hypocrisy. He doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He doesn't just want us to have the externals of religion. He wants the heart. He wants a real relationship. So, so he wants us to worship him alone, but, but in a relational way. And the one prophet that I think nails this more, almost more, as much as, well, more, as much or more than any of the other prophets is a guy named Hosea. So let's do a case study of Hosea. Because it's, the major theme of Hosea is idolatry, but he makes it personal. He, he gets it to the relational level because he likens idolatry as the sin of idolatry. Is, it's like the sin of adultery where we are in a marriage union with God. And whenever we commit a, idolatry, it's like we're cheating on it. We're, we're committing adultery. And this kind of picture of our relation with God like a marriage, this is not unique to Hosea. Many of the prophets actually use this, uh, this, uh, this image of, of our relation with God like, like that of a husband and wife. Our relationship to God is like that. Isaiah 54, he says, for your maker is your husband. Another example is Jeremiah. It says this uh, about the new covenant that would come in Jeremiah 31. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. And Ezekiel cries out in Ezekiel 16, You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. So it's a common motif. It's a common picture, uh, this picture of, of the marriage relationship. Uh, and as relating to, um, to our relationship uh, with God. Um, but no one <laughs> brings it out more powerfully than Hosea. And the reason it, for that is that Hosea, he doesn't just talk about our relationship with God like a marriage. He, he illustrates it by use of his own bad marriage <laughs> as an illustration um, and, uh, and, and really, if you look at the book Hosea and, and what he went through and, and what it describes, it really teaches us three things about our relationship uh, with God. And, and, and the first thing, actually, you can keep going because I had it so much. Uh, go to the next slide. I just had this. Yep, keep going, keep going. Those are the verses I quoted. Keep going. And next slide. There we go. So three lessons uh, from Hosea, uh, marriage metaphor. And the first is, is that our relationship with God is like a marriage. And what that really communicates, uh, so next slide. And so what that really uh, co communicates uh, is that it's not enough just to see God uh, as the king and we're subjects. Though that's absolutely true. That is absolutely a true thing. 
but it's also not enough to see God as our shepherd and we're his sheep. Well, that also is a true thing. It's not even enough to see God as our father and us as his kids. Well, that is a hugely important picture of our relationship with God. But even that does not exhaust our, our, our understanding of our relation with God because it doesn't go deep enough. What, what God is saying to us through the book of Hosea yeah, and elsewhere is that you cannot understand me and our relationship we have with one another until you see me as your bridegroom. And there's several reasons for that. If you think about uh, the marriage relationship, next slide, um, next slide, there's, it's a relationship uh, is one of a priority. I mean, when you're married, uh, you cannot date other people. <laughs> you cannot flirt with other people. It is absolutely exclusive, and that is a picture of our relation with God. When we go after, we can't flirt with other idols even. Uh, that's, that's committing a sin of adultery. And, and the second thing, it's, our, our, it's our, our relation with God is one of intimate knowledge. No one knows you better than your spouse in a marriage. And then the third thing is that uh, it's a picture uh, of, of God's passionate love for us. God says in Isaiah 62 that I rejoice over you like a husband rejoices over his bride. I love doing weddings. And my favorite part of doing a wedding is being up there and, you know, the, the, the groom-to-be is standing right there and he's terrified. And, uh, and the doors open in the back and the bride steps out for the first time in all her glory. And I just love looking at the, the face of the groom. You can just tell he just wants to run over there and scoop her up. He wants to give his life for her. And God has the audacity to say, that's how I feel about you. God says the most incredible marriages in history are just dim hints of my love for you. God says that until you see me in that way, not just as your king, not just as your shepherd, not just as your father, but as, your, as the bridegroom, as your spouse, as, the, as, your, as your groom, you have no idea how much I love you. So that's number one. Hosea shows us that our relation with God is like a marriage. Number two, he shows us that our relation with God is like a bad marriage. <laughs> uh, and here's, here's, here's how he does that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so if you go next slide, we're going to kind of land on Hosea 3 here a little bit there. But he says in verse 1, he says, next slide, go marry her again. And here's what's happening here. If you go back to cha the first chapter of Hosea, uh, this is kind of what, what happens in the opening book of, of, the, of Hosea. God basically says to Hosea, I want you to go marry this promiscuous woman. Marry this adulterous woman. Her name is Gomer. She's the one for you, and she's going to break your heart. And God tells him to do this so that his very life becomes a sermon uh, to Israel because Israel also is guilty of adultery. God has taken Israel as his bride, and they have gone after other idols, and doing that, they're committing adultery. And so Hosea does this. He marries this woman, Gomer, and immediately she's unfaithful. And they have three kids. And uh, actually, in Hosea chapter 1, it got actually, or Hosea actually lists, here's what I named the kids, and then here's what it means. The third kid, you know what the third kid means? Not mine. I mean, she, she's already unfaithful to him, and, and she goes after other lovers, but then it gets worse. He, she runs away with one, and, and then it gets worse. Uh, uh, he kind of leads her into this other lover, leads her into a life of prostitution, but then it gets even worse than that. 
For as we come to chapter 3 here, what we find is, is Gomer is, is a slave, and she's being sold. And we don't know exactly how that happened here, but we, we know that her lover is still with, with, uh, with, with her, and so uh, perhaps her, this, this guy probably was acting like a pimp with her, and now he's tired of her, and so he's trying to um, recoup his losses. And so, in other words, it's as miserable a situation as it could possibly be for Gomer. And God says, that is what my relationship with human beings are like. And that teaches us at least two things about us and our sin and our relationship with God. Uh, go to the next slide, uh, and then the next slide. Uh, one, that our, our sin hurts God. I mean, when, when, we, uh, when, we, when we sin against God in the sin of idolatry, it, it hurts him. Uh, it, I mean, if, if, if you're a subject and you disobey the king, the king gets angry, right? Uh, or or if, a, if a sheep wanders away from the shepherd, the shepherd goes, well, you know, they're sheep, they do that. Or, or if a kid disobeys their parents, it frustrates the parents. But this, a spouse running to the, into the arms of another lover, that's... That's different. This is, this is hurt at a whole other kind of level. And God says that that's, what, that's what we're, how we're treating him. When we, when we run into the arms of other lovers, other idols in our lives, anything we set up is more important to us than God, be it money or career or looks or family or whatever. And then the second thing, next slide, is that it shows that our, we're enslaved to our sin. I mean, Gomer, she's, she's basically a sex addict. I mean, we don't know her backstory. I mean, whether maybe it was abuse as a child or she's abused, abused by horrible men. I mean, she's got a story, obviously. She's, she's probably a victim in many ways. She's broken. She's dysfunctional in all kinds of ways. And she, she can't help it. She can't stop. And, and, and she's trying to fill this inner, this inner emptiness by running to false intimacy that can never satisfy. And that's really what all addictive behavior is. And we're in that place, for we're always trying to satisfy these empty places by running after all kinds of idols, and, and we can't help it. We, you know we do. We all do it. We all have idols we run to. And so we're all enslaved, just like Gomer was. But we're doing to our souls what Gomer was doing to her body. And so what can we do? It's like we're trapped by this addiction, by this dysfunction. And the marriage is doomed. Leads to point three of the book of Hosea for, for Hosea and for Gomer and for us. Point three is about how God saved the marriage. If you go next slide, back to our uh, Hosea three uh, passage here. Uh, again, you know, so Gomer, she's gone down this path, and it's a destructive path, and, and, and basically God comes to Hosea, and he says, you know, you have a thousand reasons to divorce this woman, but don't do it. Take her back, because I want to use this to point humanity to my great salvation that is coming. And so, in verse 2, next slide, he says, I bought her. And here's what that likely means. Uh, during this time in, in Hosea, uh, this, Hosea was on the scene in probably about 8th century B.C. or so in northern kingdom of Israel. And what we know from history, this was a really decadent time for Israel. Uh, Israel had really become corrupt, had adopted by this time a lot of the corrupt pr 
practices of the nations surrounding her. And so based on what we know of the practice of the nations surrounding her, uh, what was likely happening was that this was a public auction in a public marketplace. And so Gomer is probably up on the, on the auction block, and she's likely been stripped naked or naked, and the bidding starts. And she's probably got her eyes closed because it's like the only control she has left for herself. And, and she hears the bidding, 10 shekels, 11 shekels, 12 shekels. And suddenly she, she, rec- she realizes that one of the voices she's hearing is her husband. And the bidding continues, 13 shekels, 14, 15 shekels, 15 and a homer, which was the exact price of a slave, sold. And Hosea would have then put a covering over Gomer and taken her off the auction block. But you can imagine what she's thinking right now. Why is he doing this? Is he doing this to enact revenge on me? for what I have done. But no. Verse 3. I'm not going to read it because it's a bad translation, but here it is in the Hebrew. Next slide. Can you read that? Me neither. I have no idea what that says. But commentaries that I trust tell me that this is a very difficult sentence in the Hebrew to translate, and every English translation gets it wrong. Basically, what it says is this. It's three things. Hosea says to Gomer, I will dwell with you. I want to dwell with you. I don't want, to, I don't want you as my possession, as my slave. I want, I want to build a home with you. And then the second thing he says is that for a time, you're not going to have sex with anyone, including me. There's been a lot of hurt. Hosea is not naive. They're, they're just, this isn't going to get healed instantly. There, there's going to be a process here. But then the third thing that Hosea says, but then, after that period, then I will be yours. Not you will be mine, my possession. I will be yours. And we, we don't know the end of the story, but I think it's very likely that Gomer finally found rest in, in the arms of her husband because it was meant to be a picture of God's great salvation for us and our dysfunction, and, and that ends in, in our being saved. So I think for, for Gomer, it ended in her finding final healing uh, in this relationship. And, and I don't know how, what, you, how, what you feel about that. It almost feels like, man, Gomer's kind of in the spotlight and, and uh, in the book of uh, Hosea, it almost feels like is she being used by God? And I don't see it that way at all. I think, I think Hosea could say that. I think it's, he could say that he's being used by God in this example, but, you know, he's a prophet. He kind of signed up for that. But Gomer would have had this dysfunction anyway. God used Hosea in Gomer's life to bring healing to her. Uh, and so, yeah, he used it as an example for us, but he also used it for a real person. But at great cost for Hosea. What did it cost him? Not just financially, buying her... It cost him social price. I mean, he was, uh, uh, you know, probably being laughed at by his friends or, or they were saying, why don't you just have her stoned to death or why don't you divorce her? And, and there's the emotional, uh, the emotional price as well as he just absorbed, you know, the pain of, and the hurt from his wife. And what does that tell us about God? 
Where does God pay an enormous price? In Christ, God says, I am the bridegroom. And I have come to give my life to you, to redeem you, to purchase you from the slave auction. He has entered the marketplace and he has paid the price with his own life. And in doing so, he buys us away from our enslavement. And all of the prophets point ahead to, to that Messiah, to that bridegroom who would come. All of the prophets do that in some way or, or another. Sometimes it's a, it's a subtle hint, and sometimes it's more overt, but they're all longing for that Messiah to come. And as you go through the prophets, starting in 900 B.C., and kind of as you go down closer and closer to the time of the Messiah, it gets more and more intense as the countdown happens. 900 B.C., 800 B.C., 700 B.C., 600, 500 B.C. And then... Around 400 B.C., suddenly, it just stops. And from about 400 B.C. on, there's silence. There's no prophets that arise between 400 B.C. after that. And, and it's this period of silence. And, and in its place, there's, I think, is this yearning and a hunger in the people of Israel for God to speak again, for the word to come. It's just, it's just this hunger, and it gets more and more intense, 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 until one day a prophet rises up again. The first prophet in 400 years. And he ends up being the last of the Old Testament prophets. His name was John the Baptist, and he got to see what every prophet before him longed to see, what, every, what they wrote about, what they yearned for. One day, he saw a man walking along, and he said, there, that's him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the king. He's the king behind every king. He's the prophet behind every prophet. He's the priest behind every priest. He's the good shepherd. But he's more than that. He's more than a shepherd. He's more than a king. He's more than a prophet. He's more than a priest. He's the bridegroom. And I know he's the bridegroom because I'm the friend of the bridegroom. And so I rejoice that he's here. I, he must increase. I must decrease. He's the bridegroom. Question, do you have Jesus as your spouse? And I get it, guys. This is a weird picture for some of us. It's a little hard to, to, to wrap our hearts around this a little bit. But, hey, it's in the Bible, so deal with it. Um, but, but we take it together with all the other pictures still. He is the king. He's the shepherd. It's all together. It's, it's a nuance, our, our relation with God. Is, but we also need that picture of this marriage if we're going to get the fullness because all the other ones don't go deep enough. Or put it this way, is, is God your spouse or is he just your boss? He wants to be more than your boss. He wants something deeper than that. And so he's proposed to us and he wants us to say yes to him. So say yes to him. It's the message of the prophets. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the prophets who went before us. They didn't get to see what we see. We see Jesus. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would uh, give us grace as we just continue to, to fall in love with your word, including the prophets. And, and may we, by your Holy Spirit, 
And, and may your, all your word do this. Drive us to Jesus. Drive us to the bridegroom. And thank you for this picture of how passionately in love you are with every person in this room. God loves you in this room right now. He loves you individually. He loves you personally. And he wants to give himself to you. He says, I will be yours. And so say yes to him. Surrender to him now. Give him your heart. Or return to him. Say, I'm sorry for going after for flirting with the idols, I return to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercy and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.